The Chronicles of Narnia were a series of seven books written by the British author C.S. Lewis in the 1950s. The most famous of the books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a story of four children who flee to a countryside house at the outbreak of World War II and discover a magic wardrobe that leads to a fantastical world called Narnia. To start us off, I've asked Athena to read a short passage from this book. Over to you. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. This is Stefan, and you are listening to Season 2 of Softly Spoken, an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the stories that shape us. Welcome to Season 2. In this season, we are exploring the ideas and the stories that have shaped who we are today. I'm here with my co-host, Athena Cooper. She's a visual artist, a therapeutic arts practitioner, and she also happens to be my wife. In preparation for this episode, Athena, you and I were discussing some of our earliest meaningful interactions with stories or storytelling. I wonder if you remember the first story that really grabbed you. I remember very vividly being read to, and it was something that I really enjoyed. And one of the earliest uh, memories is my father reading the Narnia series to me. This was a series of books that was actually given to me by my aunt, my dad's sister. Do you remember how old you were? I want to say eight, somewhere around there. I remember my father reading me The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was definitely one of my favorites, and also Prince Caspian. I really loved the idea of there being a magical world outside of our reality and our regular lived experiences. Like the kids in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they lived a very ordinary life. And then Lucy steps through the wardrobe and suddenly there are all these magical creatures and magical environments and animals that talked, all those kinds of things. I mean, obviously you were eight years old, and as eight-year-olds, we I think many of us like to embrace magical worlds or worlds that are other than the reality that we're in. What was happening in your life around that time that perhaps made that story resonate with you in particular? Well, if I was, in fact, eight years old when I heard that story or around that age, it would probably have been around the same time that my younger sister was born. So I was going from being an only child and having all the attention that an only child gets and, you know, having to share my parents' affection a little bit more. And <laughs> what was that like for you? <laughs> not existing. <laughs> I love my sister dearly and I, I wanted a friend that wouldn't go home and that became my little sister. But of course, you know, what we ask for and what we get are not exactly the same thing. So being eight years old, an infant was probably not 
what I had in mind when I imagined a friend that wouldn't go home. I'm sure it was just the idea of there being, you know, someone else that grabbed my parents' attention and, you know, the reality of my disability, the reality of my very small stature, all these things, you know, I was very dependent upon the people around me. And so having that attention be pulled away probably felt pretty threatening at that time. I'm also wondering, you have a disability, and we talked about it in one of the previous seasons. Well, the only previous season. (laughs) So we talked about it in season one, that you have a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, which basically means that your bones break very easily. When your sister was born... What was it like for you to see her and she didn't have a disability? Was that something that you were consciously thinking about at the time? I think I was. I was aware of the fact that she would be able to do things that I would not be able to do. And that certainly was very evident in things like the fact that she really loved dance and took a ton of different dance lessons like ballet, tap, jazz, right from age two. And so that was, you know, something that was part of my experience. Okay, so you were somewhere around eight years old. You were excited about having a friend around the house, and then the friend turned out to be a baby sister. And maybe there were some mixed feelings about that seeing your sister be fully able and also getting some of that attention that you craved from from your parents. So in that landscape, you mentioned that the Narnia series was something that was read to you. Who was reading it to you at the time? I remember it being my father. And I think part of it was also just this act of reading to me, because that would have been a very focused bit of attention that I would have received around bedtime. And it was sort of a bit of me time and a bit of time that I could spend with my dad. And I really cherish those those memories of being read to. What do you think that story in particular represented for you that really resonated for you? I do feel like it was the magical world that I was really drawn to. And it was... It was not just a magical world, but it was a magical world on the other side of our own reality. Because I think of the stories that I would go on to write myself. Like I wrote when I was about 11, I started writing a short story. I guess it would have been about 50 pages long, which is long when you're 11. And hilariously, I wrote it on the computer, and the computer kept crashing and dying. So I wrote it about three times, start to finish, before I actually got it done. And that story was very heavily influenced by Narnia, and very much the magical world beyond the world that we can see. There were two lions in it. One was called Malachan, and one was called Nemesis. And Nemesis was a big black lion, and it was very, very much heavily influenced by Narnia. I think it was this idea of there being something beyond our reality. Why was that so important for you? I don't know. I think maybe just like an augmented reality or a reality that was different than our own. And certainly in that story that I wrote... The main character was someone who was afraid all the time. And in this magical reality, she gets to be the hero. She learns how 
to become the hero. That sounds like it was almost a version of you. Um, you've talked about in the past how living with a disability, there is this sense of always having to be on guard against accidents of falling, of somebody bumping into you. So it sounds like that character kind of represented a version of yourself. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, I, now that we're talking about it, totally. It does seem like it would be an interesting interpretation of myself. And I'm remembering her name was Amy, I believe. And this is going back many years to this story. And Amy was afraid of everything. And she had a best friend who I think was named Cindy. And Cindy was always the one that was going headlong into things. And Amy was the one that was super cautious and not wanting to, in that case, get on the flying unicorn. Yes, there were flying unicorns in my story because I was a big My Little Pony fan at that age, too. It was like you were working out a problem in your story. You were the hero and you were dealing with this fear. How did story writing or creativity help you to work with your fear? I think it was a way for me to explore an existence that I wasn't physically able to do myself. I look back on that story now and I see my character, my representation of myself wasn't like she was swashbuckling or doing anything that was really heroic. She was really just sort of going through this magical world and trying to deal with the problems that came up in this magical world. Which is not unlike the Narnia series where Lucy is being in this big house, this scary new place, and then finding this wardrobe and going into a new world that's unknown and kind of scary, like trying to find her way in a way. Uh, do you yeah. see parallels between your story and, and that narrative? Very much so. Although I would say Lucy was a much braver character than my interpretation. If I remember correctly, it had something to do, like the crisis there, had something to do with kids not wanting to use their imagination as much anymore. That's interesting. There's one character in the Narnia series, Susan. She basically gives up on her imagination and gives up on Narnia in a way. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot of thematic parallels around that need to hold on to imagination as a tool for navigating the unknown. Absolutely. And I think also it was sort of the start of my journey to this idea that creativity is important. You know, it's something that you need in order to navigate the world or to create better worlds. And the loss of it is this big tragic loss. Have there been times in your life where you would say you've lost touch with your own imaginary impulse? I do feel like there are times when, certainly as an adult, we sort of have to do the day-to-day -day survival stuff, and it becomes difficult to dream the big dreams again. And I think it is very important to be able to imagine a world that you don't have right now so that you can work toward it. I remember I actually had a coach once who said, that you take your dream and you put it in like a little life raft and then you throw it out to the horizon and you start swimming for it. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter whether or not you get there. 
just that you have that vision and that you're working toward it. Right. It gets to that idea that imagination is key to propelling you forward with the direction in your life. Exactly. And I think narrative and story are part of that too, because once you imagine that future, then you can start building the story is going to get you there. So coming back to the Narnia book, you mentioned that it still represents a few things. Like it represents connection with family, with your father who was reading it at night. It was an escape also from the realities of being a person with a disability. It was an inspiration for your own creative endeavors in creating fantasy lands and fantasy worlds. Would you say that that story still has impact on your life today? Actually, the novel that I more gravitate toward now is the novel Prince Caspian. And just that idea that in that story, the the creatures that have magic have basically been driven underground and are persecuted for, essentially, their difference. Prince Caspian's desire to seek out those individuals and to build an alliance with them is something that I feel is very relevant now. Just this idea of valuing that difference, valuing the magic that those folks had. Mm. And Is is there something in particular, like, I guess where my brain goes with that is that you're seeing your difference, your disability. I don't know if that's what you're thinking of, but that, that is almost kind of your magic. Is that too much of a parallel to, to draw? I, I think it's not just my disability. Like, I think it's something that is even broader than that, because there are so many instances where we can look at other people and whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's all those elements, all these things that we suppress sometimes in order to be a little less magical. In some ways in Narnia, the magical beings were considered a threat because of what they were. And the humans in that story were, they didn't know what to do with that. And that's why they were persecuted for it. Are you saying you're a threat? (laughs) I'm always a threat. (laughs) As we wind down, Athena, I wonder if you could read us a passage from Prince Caspian. At that moment, one of the others poked the fire. A blaze sprang up, and Caspian almost screamed with the shock as the sudden light revealed the face that was looking into his own. It was not a man's face, but a badger's though larger and friendlier and more intelligent than the face of any badger he had seen before. And it had certainly been talking. He saw, too, that he was on a bed of heather in a cave. By the fire sat two little bearded men, so much wilder and shorter and hairier and thicker than Dr. Cornelius that he knew them at once for real dwarves, ancient dwarves, with not a drop of human blood in their veins and Caspian knew that he had found the old Narnians at last. Then his head began to swim again. Thank you for listening to Softly Spoken. This episode was produced by the Tilted Windmills Healing Center. It was edited by Stefan de Villiers. Artwork by Athena Cooper. Music by Stefan de Villiers, courtesy of GarageBand Loops. Moral support from Lucy and Lola, our pups in residence. <laughs>